So, I, uh, for those of you that were on our house orientation retreat, which I think was most of you, but not all of you, I did kind of a why, um, why, why house orientation retreat and, and why two houses and all that. What I want to do with you this morning is actually more specific to what we're doing together, which is why Gregory House? And create, hopefully, a, help, a helpful context both biblically and spiritually, for what you're doing in here and why it is that we as a church now are really investing a lot in Gregory House and, and all that it is. Um, and this is, this is an excitement for me to have to do this uh, this morning because this, was, this is probably, I can't chart exactly when the name came to me. It might have been over 10 years ago. And we began talking and dreaming about Gregory House for over a decade, to the point that our leaders that heard of it honestly began to lose a little bit of engagement because it was one of those things that got talked about all the time but was never actually happening. And that was because the idea came to me far more quickly than the readiness for Gregory House to occur, uh, happen. So it is here now, and you guys are it, um, along with uh, several leaders in Minnesota who meet once a month. And then we're working on how we can also incorporate leaders in Kansas City, at St. Aidan's Kansas City, and how they're going to be a part of it. So one thing that we're going to build out over the years is how is Gregory House in multiple locations throughout our diocese? And how is it operating? And how is it contextualized to different locations? Not everybody can do what we're doing on a Thursday morning. Um, Resurrection has the resources to do that in a way that churches don't. But how can, it, how can there be a sense of us all doing Gregory House, Wisconsin, KC, Minnesota, Iowa eventually, and all that? which is really exciting. Um, but, but let me start with asking the questions, why Gregory and why House? And um, we'll get into to House after why, why Gregory, and that's where the scripture verses up top will especially come, come into play. But why, why Gregory? And I brought uh, Gregory the Great's, kind of, kind of his great work. He was a prolific writer. Uh, much of it, I think, is still available, but more obscure, unless you're a patristic theologian and, and interested in Western doctors and all that. Um, but this book, The Pastoral Rule, uh, yeah, they call this Pastoral Care, we better title Pastoral Rule. This is sort of his great contribution to the work of theology, and particularly pastoral theology. And thank God we have it. Uh, Gregory uh, did primarily ministry in the 6th century. He died in the early 7th century, so he's a late, kind of a late patristic father. If you kind of chart the patristics, kind of bumping up against the early Middle Ages, starting in early 8th century, he, he's a late patristic father. And Gregory is an absolutely captivating person to study and to learn from. He is definitely uh, one of my patristic mentors that I have sought to learn from. I'm very drawn to him, which is why I wanted to name our training school, our ministry school, after him and note him in an Anglican way as a kind of patron saint, as somebody that we look up to. So it's important to start with him. So you could have four key, what they call Western doctors, and by that would be theological doctors, um, of, of the church. That'd be Augustine, Ambrose, Jerome, and Gregory. So he is sort of seen, if you look at the four corners of the edifice of the Western theological enterprise, Gregory is one of those key four doctors. Now what's unique about Gregory is, um, and they all, they all had, Jerome had less leadership, Augustine and Ambrose more, but Gregory was a significant leader. So he starts as a monk, he starts actually in the marketplace and, and is raised in a very wealthy family, moves into the monastery, begins an incredible life of academic work and monastic prayer, and is brought from that ultimately into the papacy. 
And um, I think it was Calvin who said he was the last good pope. Um, I'm not sure I would agree with that assessment, but you can understand for a 16th century reformer looking back, he said Gregory was one we can really trust as a reformed thinker. And I, I think that that's important. Uh, Gregory is somebody that we can deeply, deeply trust. He was a leader. He was a theologian. He was a pastor. And he brought uh, those things together so beautifully and so powerfully. And that's actually what I want for you all. That's why I named this school after him, is I want you all to be leaders. And we will go through lots of different ways that you'll lead. And we'll do our, our five M's of ministry in Ephesians 4. We'll do that again for our Gregory House last year, folks. We're going to do that again. We're going to workshop that more. I expect you to be different types of leaders. But you're in Gregory House because we have seen in you all leadership calling, leadership gifting, leadership fruit, leadership anointing. And Gregory was a leader. He dealt with the constant challenges and pressures and joys and responsibilities of leadership. So when you read him, and I do recommend you read him, you will read somebody whose work has been pushed through the sieve of leadership. And what's come out has been somebody who's been in leadership situations constantly. So as a leader, he's also a very careful theologian, and I want you all to be theologically developed. I, I want you to be theologically matured. And it's my expectation that Gregory House will help to do that. It's also my expectation that you'll take that on yourself. I mean, I received formal theological training, um, golly, over probably 85, 90, you know, credit hours of advanced theological classes and studying over all the years. But some of the most important stuff I've done has been, hmm, I should read that. And I've been equipped to read it because I was well-trained. I should read that. I should read John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I should just read it. And I'm so glad I was given the confidence and the tools and the skills to take it off my shelf and go, huh, let's start, <laughs> you know, um, and my Bible here and, and my, uh, you know, cell phone here to call Father Eric Olson and say, could you explain phenomenology to me? You know, like, I, I'm in over my depth and a lot of stuff, but I know who to call and I want to understand this. Um, and that's what I want you to be able to do is I want you to be confident in your biblical theological understanding. Now, now, Gregory House is for leaders and artists. Gregory House is for our men and women, our next-gen men and women, our next-gen leaders and artists. Some from Gregory House may ultimately be ordained, but that never leads in Gregory House. And that's extremely important because I'm leading a movement. I'm leading a church, but I'm leading a movement that is part of a church. And if you only focus on your ordained, you'll never have a movement. And what you'll have is a very ultimately institutionalized church. And I actually have a great concern about that. Now, I want to be clear, I am not anti-institutional. I am not. Thank God for institutions. And we need churches that are institutional as well. But that's not our calling. We need them. They're like big sisters to us who have gone ahead of us and have a level of stability and strength and growth. I mean, when I go on a retreat, where do I go? Roman Catholic retreat centers. Why? Because they've built them. And I thank God for them every time. You know, we will not have any retreat centers around the country. You know, we're not going to do that as an Anglican movement. The Roman Catholics have. Well, why do it if they've already done it? Thank God for them. They've got a powerful institutional reality. You know, we're not going to give BAs out. Wheaton College does that. Moody does that. Lots of folks do that, right? And they're institutions. So we, but we know who we are. We have this, but we have this theological dynamism whereby I want that to be learned and taught. And I want that to be taught to those who may be priests or deacons, to those who may never be priests or deacons. Extremely important. And Gregory had a heart for that. He also understood that. Which is to say, by the way, that those who will ultimately go on, particularly to be priests, they will, in almost every case, have some kind of advanced degree in theology. They will be expected to work through an accredited master's program. That's great, and, 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 and that's, that's, that's another step. My concern 
is that all those who are, who are involved in leadership within our movement have been given a good theological biblical foundation. And we can actually help to give that to you if you'll participate in it yourself. And that was Gregory's heart. He was a leader and he was a theologian. He was also a pastor. He just had an incredible pastoral heart and incredible pastoral ministry. So what happened for him is he was uh, trained in what was then um, early Benedictine spirituality. Benedict had already written his rule and Benedictine spirituality, by the way, has a massive influence on Anglicanism. So it started in Italy, but it actually moved into England and the English embraced it and the English church embraced the Benedictine way. So the Benedictine way and Anglicanism are very related. That's not what I want to talk about today. Gregory saw the Benedictine way and he went, this is amazing for monks. But what about others? <laughs> and so he had this, if you will, Anglican impulse to say, let's take the rich Catholic faith and let's make it available to as many people as possible. That's the Anglican impulse, by the way. It's the vernacular. We're driven by the vernacular. How do you get into people's words? How do you get into people's language? We were the first great tradition movement to make sure the Bible was in the language of the people that it was given to. And so Greg says, how can we get into the vernacular? Well, how about we write not just a, um, a Benedictine rule, a monastic rule, let's write a pastoral rule, which is what this should be titled. Let's train pastors. Let's tell them how to lead. He calls it governance, is his, is his translative phrase. How do you do proper leadership, proper governance? And that's what drives him. So the tradition in the great tradition church, um, I don't know, but probably not in the East, um, but certainly in Anglicanism and Old Catholicism is that a bishop is handed a copy of pastoral care when he's consecrated to the Episcopal ministry. And this very copy was handed to me uh, by Father Eric Olson, um, who's the closest I had to a Benedictine monk. Um, and he handed this to me. So this is Gregory. This is his work. A couple, a couple of just uh, choice quotes from, from Gregory. Um, he says a few things. Um... Okay, this, this, uh, this is important. This is, this is one of his thinking, uh, just, uh, just one sentence uh, that I hope you guys are going to do. He says, no one ventures to teach any art, so no one ventures to be in any place of teaching or authority. No one ventures to teach any art unless he has learned it after deep thought. Um, that really would not fit in some ways with much of, for example, sort of the blogging reality that many people are now learning from. Or uh, now with the utter proliferation of podcasts, some of them are extremely worth listening to and some of them are not. I mean, I listen to someone and I go, I'm sorry, they're not telling me anything. I'm not learning anything here. They're just talking to each other, which for my generation, I just find the problem like, they just talk for 20 minutes and then they say something. Um, but what Gregory's saying is no one mentions teaching any art unless he has learned it after deep thought. I would like to give you some space for deep thought. Um, and space for deep thought outside of the, of the rigors and the pressures and the challenges of an undergraduate or graduate degree. Um, we're not yet writing papers in Gregory House. I think we'll eventually get to a place where I will have more reflection paper work to do, but we're not doing that yet. But regardless, I want you to have a space to be able to go and think about this stuff. And I'm hoping that our theological lectures and our leadership lectures, and that's really how Gregory House is organized, theology in the morning and leadership this morning is an exception. I'm really hoping that it will catalyze deep thought for you. So that as you prepare to lead others and serve others, and you're doing that right now, which is part of the gift of Gregory House, is you do ministry, you do leadership while you think about these things. I'm hoping you'll have that. And it's my expectation and hope that you will develop a life of deep thought. So that your teaching art, the art of ministry, the art of the gospel, the art of discipleship, you're teaching those things after deep thought. I want you to be reflective leaders. 
I want you to be careful thinkers. Now, I'm a highly driven, multiple, multiplying, um, you know, get it out before you get it right kind of person. Um, I sat down with uh, theologian John Clark yesterday, and we were working on stuff together. I said, John, John, just so you know, like, in your world, you have to get it right. I thank God that theologians are precise, and they have to get it right. And you have to publish this stuff. I thank God for it. In my world, I get it out. So I got Gregory House out as early as we possibly could. It took way too long than I wanted to do, and it was, it was scrappy, scrappy, scrappy. Um, but we got it out. And, and so that's, you know, that's often you know, how I, want, I do want you to get things out. But I want it to happen after some deep thought. It needs to be carefully considered. And Gregory's just, he's just a great leader for us in that way. So, hence the name of Gregory. Uh, not to mention, and this is key for us as Anglicans, you guys may already know your history on this, it was Gregory who initiated the outreach to Britain. Now, of course, in that point, he did not know that there was already a profound Celtic movement of Christianity stemming back to uh, Alban and probably maybe late second century is our best thought about how early we have some kind of gospel Christianity present in Britain, very early. He didn't know that, of course. So he wants to make sure that Britain, which they viewed as a frontier, is given the gospel. So he initiates and organizes leaders, including Augustine of Canterbury, to lead that crew. And you all know the story that Augustine got halfway and he came back because he was terrified of what would happen to him in missionary work. Um, Rachel could understand that. It was a terror to missionary work. Um, but, you know, he was already a good Anglican. Ah, I guess I should go do this, but I really don't want to. Um, and Gregory says, no, you have to obey me. You have to go reach Britain. And Augustine does. And tradition holds that he preached his first sermon on Christmas Eve and 3,000 were converted. I think it's probably tradition because they attach the number to Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts. But it does hold that he was seeing fruit. And he actually introduced the whole sort of Roman way of thinking into Britain. And that's where you get the Roman Celtic confluence and conflict and crisis and collaboration, all those things. That's, what, that's, that's how that was introduced into Britain. And that's really the seedbed of Anglicanism, is you get the Roman influx coming in from the south. You get the Celtic were coming down from Ireland, Scotland, coming down like this. And, and that alchemy created Anglicanism. And Gregory was critical to that. So he's, he's pastoral, he's a theologian, he's a leader, and he's highly missional. He's our guy. All right, that's Gregory. That's, that's, uh, that's pastoral care. Deep thought. We may teach the art of ministry well. Okay, why house? Why, why call it Gregory House? Well, first and foremost, and there's three reasons why I call it Gregory House. First and foremost, it's a work of the church. And I, I want to point you to 1 Peter 2, verse 5. It's there on your outline. You yourselves, uh, note Peter's emphatic use of uh, the second plural, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Thank you, Will, for fine teaching on priesthood. Um, and thank you for sitting some of my thunder because I'm teaching on priesthood on Sunday with Steve. Um, that's what happens. Um, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves like living stones. So each of you are living stones, and you are being built up as a spiritual house. What a powerful image. I just love that from Peter. Paul, of course, is using the same language, and they were clearly thinking through 
the household, the Jewish household, the Greek household, household codes. I mean, it was a whole realm of thinking that was going on in early, um, early Hellenistic thought and Judaic thought as the household. That was a, that was a realm of thought. It was, it was a thing. It was a really important thing. And that's where you get some of the household codes where you hear Paul saying, here's how you should behave. He's just grabbing household codes ideas that were, that, that were there. So the household's a very rich idea. They, of course, um, take it from all kinds of teaching in the Hebrew Scriptures about the house of God. And of course, the temple, the place of the temple, the tabernacle, the house of God. This has a deep Judaic root. And he's taking that, and he's thinking about that as a Jewish thinker, and he's saying, okay, now the church is the fullness of the temple of God. Jesus is the temple. He's working all this out so beautifully, and he says, you are a spiritual house. You're spiritual living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house. You're individuals. Each of you are living stones. Each of you have an individual contribution. Each of you have an individual anointing. Each of you have an individual discovery of what God's called you to do. It's so powerful. I love this about Christianity, by the way. I love this about biblical Christianity. How profoundly differentiated the individual is. How you're called to know who you are in God. How your decisions, your will matters. How your life matters. And yet, there is no individualism in Christianity. We know this. It's a hackneyed phrase now. But forgive us as preachers. We have to keep saying it to our beloved American culture where we have the idol of the, of, of, of the person, the individual person. So you're, 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 you're differentiated, you're, you're living stones, you have a living reality, but you're working as a spiritual house. And that's the power of the church. That's the lifelong journey of the Christian. It's who am I in Christ? Who is my, um, who have I been given as an identity in my personal way, in a personal nature, because it matters who I am. God loves me personally. And yet how will I live this life out and this calling out and this anointing out within the community of faith, the spiritual house. And I would like you to begin that right away as you train for ministry and think about ministry. I want you to live in a deeply communal way. Ultimately, I would love to have a way in which uh, folks at Gregory House could live in greater community and, you know, life together. Um, yeah, you guys, you, you guys are kind of doing some of that with, <laughs> with your apartment. And, yeah, yeah, and, and you guys are doing a great job at it, by the way, yeah. Yeah, I always get 20 something to come. They're like, Bishop Stewart, we just wish you understood intentional community. I'm like, deep breath. I'm like, you know, I've lived in an intentional community for 27 years. I understand intentional community. Um, so, yeah, um, it's called the family. Um, and, uh, and we'll always be together, whether we like it or not. So, so a house, a spiritual house, the house of God. Um, so this is a work of the church. It's called house because this is the work of the church. This is church work. And this is the church, and I'll quote Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, what a wonderful, thank God for Dr. Russell Moore. He's such a wonderful thinker. What a great public intellectual he is for our country and for the church. Um, but this is what the church should do. Now, it's hard for a church to be able to get to do this because local church is so hard to lead. And I don't expect new local churches to do stuff like this. This is why we've been given the gift of stability at Resurrection to actually build this eventually where we can, as the church, and I give it to other churches, have a place where we are training our next generation of leaders. But it should happen within the church. It should be utterly, you know, a part of the life of the church. So this is the work of the church. Um, second, this is a traditional term used by Anglicans to describe a place of training for ministry. I have not been able, with some research, but not a depth of research, to find out why. I don't know why the Anglo-Catholic training center that came out of the Oxford movement in the 19th century, why it was called Pusey House. I know Pusey, Edward Pusey was one of the great leaders of the Anglo-Catholic Oxford Revival. I don't know why they called it a house. 
I don't know if it's connected to the Cambridge-Oxford systems. I, I have not yet figured that out. If you find out, I would love to know. Uh, Neshota House took that from QZ House and the English tradition as an Anglo-Catholic seminary, by the way, also in the 19th century, and they then called their work Neshota House. So I don't know where it comes from. I just know that it's an Anglican tradition. Um, and, it's, and it certainly is a, is a wonderful one. Third, um, and more pragmatically, house is a place where you're known, where hopefully you're loved, and where you're trained in daily life. Um, it's just, we take it for granted, but we either learn or don't learn everything about daily life growing up in a house. And obviously, one of the reasons why the family is so important within the Christian worldview is this is where the most important stuff happens or doesn't happen, right? That's why house and home and family is such a charged reality. So it is our hope as leaders, as we've thought about training, and actually what we've experienced over 15 years and finally have now been able to make it even more intentional, is we want you to be a part of a community, and especially for you in our planning and ministry residencies, but also on staff, where it has a reflected closeness of a home. It won't be like just like a home. It won't be that. Um, in some ways, that could get actually weird, right, and almost cultic. Um, there's a way in which we're not a family house as a domestic family house is. But what I do want us to be is enough of a place where we live life together long enough and through enough seasons that you actually get to know us as leaders at some degree. And some of you have a chance to get to know some of us better than others. And I mean, it's, it's variated. But I want you to have that chance, and I want to have a chance, and our leaders want to have a chance to get to know you. And that takes a whole lot of time. And it takes more time in an upper-middle-class, perfectionistic, generally white suburban culture with Wheaton College feeding it. And I have to reckon with that. I have to thank God for Wheaton, but I also have to reckon with that. How do I train folks contiguous to Wheaton College? Well, one thing I've learned is I, I definitely can't just interview them and expect after two or three interviews that I know them because they're working so hard to impress me um, that I'm not going to really get to know them in, that, in, in that, that week or two. And even in a, you know, in a very formal employment situation, which we don't really do at Res, we're pretty informal and connected and close, but the formal employment situation too, you can pretty much stay on your railroad track and you know, get, get the train there on time and carry the stuff you're supposed to carry and everyone checks the box. And, and actually in a normal employment situation, that's fine. I mean, that's part of marketplace performance. <laughs> do your job, you know, that, that's what we want you to do. Get on the track, get the things on there on time. That's actually fine. That's not what we're doing. So I actually, I and other leaders, we have to have a house, so to speak, so we can actually get to know you so we can actually really help you. So the greatest fear right, when you're 25, is that you're going to fail, but it's a greater fear, that you'll fail and everyone will know it. And that's a very normal fear, but it's a huge fear, and it drives you and enlivens you, and, and I have that fear at 52. I have less of it, though. I have far less than I had at 25, because I've lived my life in a church where I have failed, and I haven't done well, and I'm still here, and I'm known, and I'm truly loved. So I actually have less of it. It animates a lot less of my angst. It just, you know, I just have a lot less of it because I've, I've grown up here at Resurrection. I started here when I was 20, 1988. Um, so that said, that's what we want. Now, that can sound great, but that's actually kind of hard. So it's really important to be clear with you guys as you go into it. And there's varying degrees of intensity and hardness related to this. 
Um, you know, one of the most intensive processes is toward a planting residency. I mean, think of the intensity. These guys moved from an established life in Virginia. Dunn and Jenna Perrine left Willow Creek and begun staff there to be here with us. These guys came here and moved their families. I mean, this is a highly intensive reality. So you kind of have your highly intensities down to lesser intensities. But there's a way in which, I mean, I could have emailed and Skyped with these guys, you know, regularly. I would know nothing like I've gotten to know them now. And I have a whole other year with them. I'm, I'm counting the days going, I want to get to know them more, right? Um, because we're not just planting churches, and we're not just planting planters, we're planting sons and daughters. That's what we're planting. Because I want a long-term, slow-burn revival of word and sacrament through the Holy Spirit. And the only way you're going to get that is you've got to be relationally connected. And that's how, that, that's, that's, that's how the Bible thinks, right? I was just reading Philemon again in my Bible reading, right? And he says, he says, Onesimus, my heart, is what Paul calls Onesimus, my heart. You know, it's like, it's like that, and I'll teach on mothering and fathering, I think it's next week. That's how close it is, and that's what we want to at least begin to approximate. And we won't do it perfectly, and there, um, it won't be as much connection as many would hope for, and we hope it will build more and more in. But there will be a chance to really get to know each other, and for us to get to know you, and to have those awkward conversations where that didn't go well. And, it, and for some of you, it's going to feel like a crisis moment. You're going to feel like, ha, ah, the floor is falling out, I'm spinning, and everything's dark around me. But what the good news is that whoever's having that conversation with you, with a supervisor or somebody working closely with you, it isn't a crisis moment for them. It feels like a crisis for you when that moment comes. This isn't going well. That didn't happen well. It didn't sound right in the sermon, whatever it is. It feels like a crisis to you. It's not a crisis for us. It's actually what we're waiting for. Because we're spiritual moms and dads. Right? I mean, when my kids get disciplined, it's a crisis for them. But for me, I'm like, I'm just being a dad. And honestly, I go on for the rest of my day. And I'm fine. They're like, ah, you know, I'm fine. Because I'm just doing my work. So for us, we're actually hoping for opportunities where you don't do well. We're hoping for them. Because then we get to get closer to you. And what I hope you'll hear in those conversations and, and how we've, we try to do this and train each other is, hey, this is going to be kind of difficult. But I have a lot of hope that after this conversation, we're going to be closer than we are now. And you're going to have a deeper sense of security rather than insecurity. And we're going to walk this through. And I just want to be really upfront about that. And that can get complicated. And by the way, those of us that are often bringing those words, we're not always perfect about it. And we get hooked in the conversations too. And we don't always do well. And sometimes we'll have to come back and say, I didn't do so well in that conversation. I've had so many of those, you guys, in 20 years of training leaders, so many of those where... They didn't do well, I didn't do well, so we have the conversation again. And then we have it again. What's happening in that process, though? We're getting closer. We're actually getting to know each other. Um, I mean, Steve and I have had some really awkward moments in 15 years of me discipling him and getting to know him and him getting to know me. And we've had some really awkward moments. And, and this feeling, like, huh. And you leave the conversation, actually, it's not all right yet because you've got to have another one or another one or another one. Um, and that's been really powerful. And I just want you guys to know, like, that really is how things happen here. Um, now, did they happen every day? I wouldn't say that is the case. Actually, there's a lot of joy and a lot of ease and a lot of working well together. But they, they do happen. And when they happen, if you can humble yourself and trust that the people who are talking to you care for you, have more experience than you, and are really here to build you up, we're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. It's part of a house. And it's part of living in a house. And so for some, that's a lot of, for some it's like, yeah, I grew up in this. I can do this. Others, it's not like that. And, um, 
And I have a particular love for those folks because that's how I was as a 20-something leader. I had high potential, I had giftedness, um, but I, I needed a lot of care and discipleship. I needed a lot of healing. I needed a lot of healing. Um, so, we want Gregory Place to, to do that. We want to be a place to fail, to fall, and to put it less dramatically, just to not do so well, which is usually what it looks like. Um, Russell Moore says this. He, he was writing about, uh, just thinking about traditional seminaries, which he wasn't jettisoning, and, and we shouldn't jettison traditional seminaries. We need far less of them, by the way. We don't need as many as there are in the country right now, but we do need some really good ones still. Um, but he says this. The ideal pattern, Dr. Moore says, is for churches to seek to identify early in life those who are gifted and called to ministry. He talks about VBS, which is not part of our church culture, but start looking for your leaders at Res Kids and Res Youth and Res College who are given to call to ministry. The churches should discern a call to ministry the way the church always has, by watching ministers minister. Great phrase from Dr. Moore. We want to watch ministers minister. Um, we want to watch you do things and be there when you are doing them and have a chance to cheer you on. That's what I do all the time. So I don't know if you guys, may not, you probably didn't notice this, which would be absolutely fine, but that's what I did last night. So, I mean, I've led ResFast for 20 years, right? I don't lead ResFast anymore. I watch leaders lead ResFast, and then I give them feedback afterwards. That's what I do. So that's exactly what I did last night. I watched Brett, I watched Julie, I watched Will, and I got home and I texted them, right? I watched ministers minister. That's what we're doing. We're doing that on several levels in many, many different ways. You guys know that when you preach at Res, you preach the 8.30, you're coached before your sermon. It's just an example. Um, then you preach the 8.30, and then, and the young preachers love this, then in between, you get feedback about how to change your sermon for the 10.30. Um, and, um, and it's not because we're just mean, right? It's because I had a chance to not only, and I don't do as much coaching, Master more, but if I get to coach, I get to coach and watch the process, but nothing like actually doing it, right? Preaching is one of those things that is so much harder than it looks. So um, you actually do it and you go, ah, you know, and, and so I get to come in or Matt gets to come in in between and say, hey, here are two things that can be changed. Um, and that's why you often won't see a, a younger preacher back at the guest center between services. They're scribbling away in the sacristy. Um, it's great. By the way, I still get that too. So um, I still get coached in between as well, which is really helpful. Okay, so we want to watch ministers minister. That's, that's why we have a house. All right, guys, what is Gregory House? What is Gregory House? If I have to give you Gregory House in a nutshell, it's this. It's a revival of word and sacrament ministry school. It's a revival of word and sacrament ministry school. You know I'm going to leave with revival. It's just a leading calling upon us as a people, upon our diocese. It's a revival of word and sacrament, which you know, you already got that, ministry school. Um, and I want to use school in a broad sense, and it's a place where you're to learn ministry. Our, our goal is this, and um, it's to disciple and to train. So those are the verbs. We want to disciple, or we want to be spiritual moms and dads, Spiritual aunties and uncles, raising up nieces and nephews and sons and daughters. Um, I use those distinctions because in some you're going to have a closer relationship. In others, it's going to be more like a niece-nephew relationship. Um, we want to train. And here's who we're seeking to disciple and train. There's four groups we want to disciple and train. And we're very clear about this. And it's happening. Future church planters. Uh, I've got to make sure, and this is a matter of prayer and fasting for Amy, for me, and for many of our leaders. But I have to make sure that we continue, by God's grace, to find those who are called 
to lead church plants. That is extremely strategic to our work. Um, it's not that there's a hierarchy of some that are more important than others, but there's a strategic urgency. I have to find those who are willing to go out and plant churches because that's how everything else is going to fit. So um, strategically, for me as a bishop, I'm very, very focused on those that are already leading churches, our rectors, and I'm very focused on those who are going to lead churches, our planters. And I'm shifting things more and more to focus more and more there. That's where a lot of my strategic time and, and energy goes, and then in those who are leading resurrection. So we want to find and need future church planters. I mean, how the Lord brought the Magnusons, that story is unbelievable. How they found us and emailed me, and it's just such a great story of God doing it. He did it again with Seth and Jody Hedden. Some of you met Seth and Jody on the house orientation retreat. They're working um, in Gregory House in Minnesota. I mean, you know, they Googled Holy Week teaching and found word and table, and voila, there was Ken and Stephen in all of his warmth and brilliance. And they went, where is he connected? They found our website, which made me very happy because we invested a lot in that website process. And they connected. And they reached out and said, can we come work with you? And we said, let's talk. So we need that. And that's a matter for prayer. Um, we don't ever take for granted uh, our pipeline of new planters. Two, we need future church plant team leaders and artists. And I, now I'm going to step in for Chad and Kirsten as they're getting ready to head out in a year, less than a year. Um, they need folks to go with them. They need folks to go, we want to help you. We want to be part of your launch team. We want to be part of thinking through how children would be ministered to. Because when we launched in the Petrine model, we launched children ministry right away. When we launched in the Petrine model, we, we launched with operations in place right away because you're starting to run a weekly, <laughs> multi-generational, Eucharistic, missional work every week. And so we need folks that have been trained in Gregory House to go with our church plant leaders, to be part of a church plant leadership team. And we need leaders to go, and we need artists to go. And we need artistic leaders and leadership artists. We need all that mix. It's extremely important to how a Petrine church works. When we work well, and, and when our churches flourish, and most of our churches have flourished, it's because we got that, that team right, or God gave us the right people for that team, which is often how it goes. Um, and we started looking at it and going, you know what, we need to be more intentional in this. Um, it happened organically. So Father Aaron plants in the city seven years ago, and he knows that a worship pastor is going to be extremely important. Well, he builds a relationship with Dan Fager, who Steve had raised up and trained as a worship leader, and Dan raised money and went to work for Aaron for seven years. Now Dan's uh, just moved to uh, St. Louis. That was part of that. And we were like, with that, went, oh my word, we got to be even more intentional about this. These church planters need us to be developing the next generation of church plant team leaders. Some who will go on themselves to plant because those plants are going to plant, right? Which is another great way. I mean, I love that you're at City learning from City, as Cunningham did as well, right? And I can't wait to who's going to be learning from you guys in your church. I mean, we're doing that. And that's also part of the multiplication strategy is you plant pregnant with a hope and readiness to plant again, to plant again, to plant again. Now, it's a lot written about it. It's a lot talked about it. It's really hard to get to, make, to, get to that place. But we're getting there, and Gregory House is a big part of that. Third, um, I want to help disciple and train future, future cathedral and diocesan parish staff members. In other words, I'm raising up staff for our movement. That's a big, big part of what we want to do, and Amy has a passion for that. Um, she has a passion for how you hire, how you train, how you, you onboard, offboard, how you do all of that. Because as our churches grow, and Father Aaron, it's really fun to watch Father Aaron's church growing, is he has to do that. He needs to hire more people. You get to 200, you're going to need at least two full-time people, a handful of part-time people, 
on staff. Um, same, so we don't have a lot of that yet, but we're getting more and more of that. Father Scott Cunningham's working through this all the time. All, he's, always, he's calling me regularly. You know, help me think about staff and who could staff this and who can get that. Father Trevor is saying. So we want to help raise up that cadre of folks. It is, it is a lot like the baseball farm system in that way. It's very, very similar to the way they do it. And the teams that flourish and do well, the teams that have built their farm systems. Um, it would be very, very rare, honestly, for us to go outside the diocese to hire staff. I'm not saying we will never do it, but we've hardly ever done it. I've made one hire in 20 years of leading res outside of res for staff. Okay. Actually, not great. And it's because it was so hard to come into a very developed culture. Yeah, it's a culture thing. Um, and now our, our, our rectors are feeling the same way because they're like, oh, I got this crazy, you know, 5S, Revival Word and Sacrament culture thing going on. And I can't even go out to my ACNA friends and Sicilian and say, hey, can you come in? Because they're like, well, I'm super evangelical, but I'm not open to the Catholic, or I'm super Catholic, but I'm open, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, you know, we got to grow it. Uh, we, that, that's what we're doing. Fourth is we want to disciple and train global missionaries. And um, I am deeply passionate about this. How I wanted to be there. It wasn't my call, wasn't God's call in my life, and I'm, I'm at total peace with it, but I still have a heart tug to be in the nations. And God's blessed me to, I get to travel and go to the nations and serve the nations. And it's one of my great joys. But how I wanted to be there and how I love the work of global missionaries. I just love them. Um, and I refuse to accept the kind of imperialistic um, you know, agenda that's put on them because most of them are not doing that. And particularly now, in the past 50 to 100 years, sure, there was some of that. And of course, there's correctives that have been needed in the work of global missions. But I love our evangelical global missionary heritage. I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, I love what, what God's done with missionaries. And I want to be a part of it. And I want to raise up global missionaries. I want to be a part of that and be connected to that. And, uh, and Father Matt's heart is here. And we're thinking more and more, wow, how are we even getting more and more intentional in saying, hey, would you please consider this? How do we go, if you will, old school evangelical on this better and better? College Church still has this culture. Thanks be to God. College Church has really continued to develop this culture over the years and give a large part of their budget to work at global missions. There are so many folks who are still not reached, right? And we've had places that have been reached, and then we have the massive questions of education and discipleship. And Anyway, so I'd like to be a part of that. Again, in the same way that we're not a seminary, we're not, we can't train you for the intricacies of cross-cultural mission. We're not prepared to do that, uh, which is why we're going to always partner with mission agencies that are. But I want global missionaries who are going, okay, I want to be part of planting revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit, which means many of our global missionaries will end up working with our global partners that are already there. So Rachel and Peter, thanks be to God, we've got this partnership with you. I will be sending you missionaries. Um, and Gregory and Heidi and, and the work in Nigeria and the work in Kenya and Brazil, um, that's what we're going to do. It's such a joy that Madeline was able to serve in a short-term summer um, with our partners in Brazil. And it got very real. I mean, she found out what's strong in the Brazilian church and what's not strong. It was like a house. It got very real. But what a joy for her to have a place, actually, to say, okay, this is where I can serve. And for you as missionaries, and Rachel, this is part of your story, and Madeline had this epiphany in her time in Europe this summer. Of course, you also want to be part of the church. So we need you, and you need us, which sounds like the gospel. We have this interdependency now where, you know, we can say you can be sent from the church, in the church, be the church, um, but you need to get the church there in a way the church is not. Wait, Devin was telling me that where she's ministering right now, 
Uh, when she was in Jordan, she had options for church life. Now she's three hours from a local gospel church. Three hours where she is right now. Wow. Wow. 2019. Right? Amazing. And she's in a developed area. Three hours. All right. Um, with Gregory House, here's, here's the hope, is that leaders and artists, and I use that phrase together very intentionally because that's the combination you see in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, that helps make up the people of God. You'll leave Gregory House prepared to impart the mission God's given us. To impart. In other words, not just to, to have the knowledge, but to minister a revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. And I realize that that's something of an intuitive phrase. And I'm content to leave it as such. That I want you to be able to have ingested and lived and felt and seen revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. But part of, part of your family culture now. And then to go out and live your family culture. In the same way that uh, you leave your household and you begin to figure out what culture you're going to have as a family or what culture you're going to have in an apartment or in a community. So I want our planners to go, well, I ingested it. I've got it like a kid has their family culture. And now I'm going to figure out what that looks like somewhere else. I want you to be able to impart our mission. And I want you to be able to do so with the values of our movement. I want the five S's to be understood by you biblically, for you to be able to defend them theologically, and for you to be able to live them in totality. I want them all to be integrated in you. If we at Resurrection and in other Gregory Houses, if we can have folks who can impart our mission and have integrated our values, I'm content. And there's a lot of that, 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 there's a lot that, that doesn't cover. And there's stuff that once you're in your new place of ministry, you'll go, ah, I don't feel ready here. And fair enough. I mean, Scott, you know, Cunningham, I've been helping him. He's like, I'm not ready here. I'm like, you're right. I, didn't, I did not help you with that. I should have. I mean, I'll grow in that. I'll build it. But what I can know about Scott Cunningham and Marissa is they get our mission. They've got our values. They're doing it. And it's happening in Madison. Great. Uh, Gregory House has four components, you all, that, that make up Gregory House. And uh, this is important. Um, because sometimes it can seem like the residency, and I think this is because we've been developing it, it's been this way, the residency can be separated from Gregory House. But not all of you are residents. Some of you are staff here. Some of you are missionaries. So Gregory House is not just residents. Residents do form our backbone. It's, it's, it's what makes the whole thing sit up. Um, so Gregory House has the residency component. That's our first component. Ministry residencies, part-time or full-time, and planting residencies. Ministry residencies are developed, of course, for those that are um, kind of earlier on in the discernment process, and in ministry residency, our hope is that, yes, you'll get our mission. Yes, you'll get our values. And also, you'll get clearer on your particular ministry calling. Am I called into full-time ministry or not? Am I called to be a marketplace? I, I totally expect I'll have some who will go, man, I'm called to teaching. I'm called to marketplace. I'm called to whatever. But thank God for Gregory House. I just became an incredible part of this movement. Um, Dan Easley always said, oh, I wish I could have had Gregory House before I went into my engineering career. That's what I would have loved, you know. Um, I'd love to think about a you know, 23-year-old Dan Easley, you know, <laughs> training him in leadership and theology as he prepared for a career in engineering, where he's been an unbelievable gospel agent. So residency has that. The ministry residency particularly allows for that. Planning residency is really, that's where we've gone, okay, these are leaders that, you know, that in a matter of two or three years are going to be ready to plant or going to be ready to be positioned to plant. In John and Jenna's case, they're positioned to plant. Um, thank God they were able to step in come alongside Aaron, catalyze mission, so they can ultimately plant. But that's what's happening in a planting residency. Second component is classroom. So there is this. There's us sitting around a table, and 
um, and doing teaching and, and doing more workshopping this year and focusing in the classroom on theology and leadership. Those are our two foci. Third, there are events. Part of Gregory House is participating in events. So you have kind of the, the regular life of the family in the classroom, that's day in and day out, and in residency especially day in and day out. But then there's events, and, and then th these events are included as Fully Alive. So Fully Alive is one of the events that we want you to be a part of in your training and development. Revive, our usually annual um, gathering in diocesan synod and, and really our, our missions conference is really what Revive is in so many ways. The house orientation retreat, uh, a church plant boot camp if you're considering being on a church plant leadership team or being a church planter. Um, so Molly Ruck, who is leading our Petrine Church Planting, is also uh, second chair now to the leader of Always Ford. Always Ford is the national church planting work for ACNA. And Molly's now working on getting church plant boot camps around the country. And they're going to pilot their first boot camp in Denver. Do you guys have the dates for that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm hoping to go with you for at least the first part. So we're going back to Denver together. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's part of it. Um, for, for many residents, uh, you know, ministry partnership development, MPD is a part of it. Not for all of our residents, but for many. And if you're part of a church plant leadership team, you'll be raising support. If you're part of a global mission work, you'll be raising support. Um, I raised my full-time support for four years in university. I'm so glad. I wasn't glad at the time. I didn't like it. But I'm so glad I did it. Um, and, uh, and so in Gregory House, many of you will have the experience of raising support. This is, oh my word, look at this. <laughs> it's almost a matching thing happening yeah. with, with mom and son. I love it. Hi, Charlotte. Um, and just to say a word about that. Um, Fundraising, right? I mean, it's, it's embarrassing, it's awkward, it's difficult, and it's so deeply biblical. Now, different leaders have raised funds in different ways throughout the centuries, and there's several ways to raise funds. And you've got the Mueller School, and you've got the Cruz School, you've got different schools of fundraising. Um, but there's a deep gospel urgency in what happens in fundraising which is you, you move into a place of vulnerability, you move in place of fragility, you move into a place of significant need, and you need primarily the body of Christ to help you, and this gospel. And, um, and for those that will eventually be on staff teams and for those that will eventually be rectors, it will never go away. You always live that. I stopped a certain kind of fundraising when I left university staff and came on staff here, but I started a whole other life of fundraising. Every Sunday I'm fundraising. Now I'm preaching the gospel and I'm leading, but I'm constantly aware that the financial development of resurrection is part of a significant team, our senior team, investor especially, but ultimately as rector, it's on me. That's part of my job. I can't say, oh, I just preach. Well, that's not part of leading a local church in our culture. You constantly have to be aware of the fact that you're building trust, you're teaching what it means to be gospel, you're helping folks understand money. That is very integrated in, in the life of ministry uh, and in almost every single ministry. There's a reason why Paul would say, I expect you to send me on my way, i.e., here's a fundraising letter, and I need to get from Philippi to Ephesus, and I don't have the money, but you do, and I need you to help me do that. He does it all the time, all the time. Um, so the, the fundraising piece is one of those things that we can feel like, oh, I just wish it would go away. It's not going to go away because God doesn't want it to go away. 
He wants to be a part of your life in ministry. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to rule your life, but he wants it to be in your life. It was in Paul's life. It was in countless people's lives. Um, it's in my life constantly as a leader. It's part of it. So that's part of the events. Uh, the final fourth piece component is mission. Um, and this is a new thing this year, and so we're going to experiment on you guys and, uh, and see how it goes. But I realized as I was praying over the summer, I realized, wait a second, we never have a chance to be in, in awkward mission situations together. And that's so f- important and rich. Um, and this is a, this is a greenhouse uh, gift that Gregory House wants to learn from. So, uh, so I've talked to Father Brett and Father Matt, and I've said, hey, I like, and I wanted this to be happening kind of in pairs, two by two, and so would you guys even as a pair lead four Thursday morning mission sessions for our Gregory House folks, um, where from 9 to 12 or so, um, we're going out and there's mission happening, and they're delighted. Uh, so they've got some different ideas they're thinking about, but it could look like um, going down to UIC with Father Nate and his team and doing surveys with the students down there. It could look like prayer walking um, Adams Park once it's back together, Memorial Park, and see how the Lord would lead us to pray for others or be a blessing to others. It could look like a lot of different things. But I think it'd be really good for us to get out of our beloved four cathedral walls and, um, and into our beloved community and just see what the Lord will do and how he'll, how, how he'll lead us. I just read the most amazing testimony yesterday. It's from a guy that just, uh, he came, several years ago, he came out of the, the uh, very active gay lifestyle. And the way that he was converted, he was, he was in a coffee shop in uh, Northern California, and there were four people there having a Bible study with their Bibles open. That's all it took. He went, wow, they're reading the Bible together. So he approaches them and says, this is really neat you guys are doing this. Like, yeah, we're part of this church. Would you want to come? Now, I've made thousands of church invitations and rarely did somebody come, but he came. And that very first Sunday he converted. So unusual, but it's awesome. <laughs> it's so encouraging. <laughs> and he's now this amazing spokesman for the gospel amidst the LGBTQ community. He's a highly successful interior designer in the um, California culture, and he's now this incredibly gospel-clear uh, man. His first name is Beckett, by the way, which is kind of cool. Um, so, mission. Let's get out in mission. All right, you guys, we're going to take a break pretty soon. Any questions um, on Gregory House or stuff that would be helpful to, be, to clarify or for our, our one-year veterans, anything else that you guys would add to what Gregory House has, has been? More than a residency, more than a classroom, more than events, more than mission, and hopefully all those things.
Wow. That's amazing. Tested veterans <laughs> on this side of the table. That's so weird. Please don't ever do that again. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes doing stuff they don't always love. I mean, Chad was really patient. You know, he was always engaged in it, but it wasn't always stuff that you would you would enjoy doing as much. But it was coming into the culture and being a part of that, and you were incredibly open to that.
in ministry situations that are right there all the time. So good. And then, and then also having fun with the daughters. I mean, we yeah. started a youth um, church last week. Um, wow. So yeah, there's this whole thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take a break. Father in heaven, come. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, come. I pray that this morning would be... Uh, a morning of greater clarity as to why you've called these different men and women here now. Come, Lord. I thank you for the sense of momentum at the beginning of a ministry or the sense of movement, but I pray that actually, that actually wouldn't replace a very clear word from you to them. They're not just here because this was the next thing. They're not just here because this was an opportunity or a job. They're here by selection. And Spirit of God, I just pray now that you would minister a kind of holy selection over each man or woman here. God selected you. God asked this of you. This is much more about him than anything to do with Rez or Gregory House. Lord, I pray that they could have a sense of your Minister your delight here. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister a sense that the Father is working out their identity and ministry with them through this season. Give them a sense, Lord, of how special this season is, how quick it will go, and how special it is. Pray, Lord, if you would speak any word to any one of us, Lord, about what you want to minister in Gregory House and in all that that means this year, Lord, would you just bring that now? Come, come, Spirit of God, come. Would you anoint this year together? Anoint our discussions. Give us a love for each other. Help those of us that teach to teach clearly and carefully the realities of gospel leadership and of the gospel itself. Protect us, Lord, from illness throughout this year and other things that would keep us from being with one another and, and learning from you. I pray an anointing on each ministry represent. I thank you, Lord, that every single person here is involved in a ministry. 
called into a ministry now. And I pray a blessing anointing upon each ministry. Thank you. Lord, would you please have mercy on my shortcomings and the shortcomings of those of us that lead and teach through us and also at times perhaps despite us, Lord, would you give them a mission of revival to impart and give them the biblical 5S values to integrate into their lives. Give them strategies and ways to do this ministry and confidence in the gospel. Give them confidence in the church. Confidence in baptism. Confidence in the Eucharist. Give them a deep, solid, stalwart confidence in you, O oh Father, I pray. Let me just bless your name and commit this, this year of Gregory House to you in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. I think we have snack time. And you can make a quick announcement. Fantastic. Snacks are important. I was just thinking of Amy, of course you were thinking that. I mean, absolutely. Although I didn't know that, I didn't know there was a snack drawer here. Oh yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea there was a snack drawer. It's awesome. Oh, that is so funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, there in my, my office all by myself, eating my, my, my you know, home brought snacks. <laughs> and snacks can be brought, snacks can be bought, snacks can be baked. Yeah, fantastic. All right, Rachel. Yeah, good. We miss, we miss him. Oh, and here are some snacks today. I talked about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. But when I know, Matt's still working on it. But yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mentioned, I mentioned that that we, I, we have four on the side. I'm just guessing it would be just home, right? The record button hits. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke 22, uh, verses 14 to 30.
here's an outline. It's probably pretty obvious why I start with this teaching with Gregory House. Um, in the last three Greg Houses we started, this is the third, um, I've always started with this teaching. And um, I have a, a great concern and a great passion, um, but I'm really interested just in the theology of Sabbath. I've always been intrigued by that and um, kind of the Hebrew vision of Sabbath. That's always been an intrigue to me. That was early on when I was studying theology. Then as I started doing ministry and leadership, I became really interested in how do I do this and not burn out? It just became actually a, just a literal question for me. Um, you know, how could I how could I do this? Now I'm gonna um, so um, my phenomenal planning resident who has a an expertise among many things in how statistics are used has warned us properly of, of misuse of statistics. And I'm thankful for that, actually, because it's really good. So I, I think these stats are pretty good. Um, this was a, um, a work done among 1,000 pastors. So they, they sampled 1,000 pastors and just asked them about their ministries, and particularly around the question of burnout. Here's, here's what they got. Um, out of 1,000 folks, 40% of the pastors were seriously considering leaving the pastorate in the last three months. So four out of 10 went, in the last three months, I can't do this. I gotta go do something else. By the way, my brother and I have this running joke and, and it's, um, what's your current fantasy of what you would do if you weren't doing this? <laughs> um, and for years, we, we, we've kind of done that, you know, what, what's your current fantasy? And um, you know, for, for years, mine was, oh, I think I'd, I'd go work at an academy, coach cross country and cut grass in the summer. Um, he's like, oh, no, 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 that, that would be far too strenuous. Um, I, I think maybe it was somehow finding a way just to read. I can't remember exactly, exactly <laughs> what my brother, but, you know, we, we have these, like, he, he, he had some expectations pretty good ones, I'm forgetting it now, but we always had these, like, you know, in the 40 percentile, if I left this, when I leave this, I'm going to go do this. 50% um, of pastors said they were unable to meet the demands of their job, um, and they were so discouraged that they were trying to get out but they couldn't find another way to make a living. So they felt like, hey, I've got one skill set, it's pastoring, and I can't transfer that to another uh, profession, so I want out, but I'm stuck. This is, this, this is a really key one. For every 20 pastors who go into ministry, only one retires from ministry. I've read this stat in a few different places. So for, for um, every 20 who start, often in their 20s, only one retires. And I've read that in a few different places. Yeah. So some of that, by the way, has with, our, with the old-time seminary system where folks thought, I should go into ministry, I'll go to seminary without being able to go through a process like this and be discerned and loved and cared for and, and helped to find out what their fit was. But that, to me, is a stunning stat. This is, this is five years ago. Um, of 1,050 pastors surveyed, 100% of them had a close friend or associate from seminary who had left the ministry because of burnout, church conflict, or moral failure. Every single person, a thousand people, all of them said, yes, I have a friend or an associate from seminary that I know who has left because of burnout, moral failure, or a church crisis that pushed them out. So this is a huge concern for me. Um, 
one of the reasons it's a huge concern for me is I'm a spiritual father. So I care a lot about you. And I care about your future. And I've watched, and, and now I am a veteran. Um, I've been in it for 25 plus years. And I have watched friends and associates. I certainly could completely agree with all those stats. Um, get chewed up and spit out. And I've seen what local church can do to people. I've seen what the global mission field can do to people. Um, I've seen what church planting can do to people. And it's a huge concern for me. And I feel a level of responsibility because I'm here saying, come in, come in, come in. The water's great. Um, and the water is great. But you have to know where to swim and where not to swim. And they don't always put uh, signs up in church. There's sharks in this water. Um, but there are, and the sharks can be people, but more often the sharks are your own sin nature and your own drive and your own perfectionism and your own activism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there are sharks in the water. I am saying come in and swim, but I have to start by making sure that I've taught and you're ready to think through what your Sabbath rhythm of life will be like. Um, more and more, because there is a concern around burnout ministry, it's framed as self-care. And I'm not going to go after that phrase, and if you happen to use that phrase, you might see me wince a little bit, but I'm not going to have a fit, because the idea behind self-care in the current evangelical vernacular is understandable. We're trying to avoid this very stuff. We're trying to say, don't hit burnout, don't have a moral failure, blah, 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 blah. Um, I just think that there's a better way to think about it, which is Sabbath commitment. So rather than self-care, what I think the biblical framework is having a Sabbath commitment, which will then be care for yourself. And it's right to be concerned about yourself. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the self-care phrase tends to also interface and collide with a narcissistic culture that I am concerned about. Uh, burnout's an interesting phenomenon. The phrase was first developed in the 1970s, so it's a relatively recent phrase in American English. It was an American psychologist who's credited with first developing it, and he was developing it because he was watching um, professions like healthcare. And so in his own profession as a psychologist and working with others in the healthcare uh, world, he was seeing this phenomenon that he eventually called burnout. Um, I started hearing it first in the 90s, but I have never heard it so much as I've heard it used in the last five years. I just hear it in our language all the time. You're burned out, I'm burned out, she's burned out, they're gonna burn out, um, I'm facing burnout. It's a really commonly used phrase, and we need to listen to that phrase in our American language, in our American English, and why it's being used. Um, it's a real reality, it's serious, but it's a hard reality to define. Um, this scholar, the original scholar, identified three sort of components of burnout. One is exhaustion, just an utter physical exhaustion. You can't do what you once did physically. Uh, you can't handle the 12-hour day. You can't get up in the morning. You can't imagine how you're gonna endure a two-hour meeting. You're utterly overwhelmed by the 10, 12 hours of sermon preparation that's ahead of you. Like, you just, you're just exhausted. You just can't imagine doing it, number one. Number two, and this is a really telltale sign, cynicism about the work you once loved. Um, so what you once uh, felt excited and engaged about, now you'll find yourself making sarcastic, cynical jokes about it. Now, we make lots of jokes about ministry here. It is part of how we survive. Um, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of humor about ministry. You've got to have it. You've got to, by the way, this is just totally aside. You've got to laugh a lot in this work. I mean, you just have to laugh a lot um, and get people around you who are funny, you know? It's, it's, it's I mean, Kroll is good at lots of stuff, but he's funny. He's like, come over here, make me laugh. Father Brett, come in my office and make me laugh for a little bit, you know? It's like, it's like you've got to have that. You've got to have people making you laugh, you know? Williamson's pretty funny, too. Um, 
but it's really important. Uh, but that cynicism about the work you once loved is a key attribute. And then reduced performance. You're actually not doing as well as you did. Um, you're not leading that meeting very well. You're not responding to a conflictual situation very well. You're not problem solving very well. You see reduced performance. Um, now, this reality of burnout can come in tension with this passage that I want to read to you now, Luke 22, 14 to 30. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. What you see is Jesus, who is not simply serving, which he is, or sacrificing, which he is, but obviously in the institution of the Eucharist, giving his very body and blood. I mean, Stephen's called the first Christian martyr, sort of. Jesus is our first martyr. He's the first one who gave his life. And in the first martyrdom, the great first martyrdom, we have one who spent himself entirely. So how do we imitate Jesus? I remember one of the mothers in the church when I was in my 30s, she prayed for me. She laid her hands on me and she prayed for me. Lord Jesus, help Stuart to spend himself. Um, it was a very powerful prayer. But how does that line up with concern around burnout? Um, how do you spend yourself and not burn out? Uh, that to me is a really important Bible question. How do we imitate Jesus who sacrificed his very life, who gives his body, his blood, and yet not burn out? I think that's a really, really important question. Um, it is true that your service in the church will often lead to a kind of serious exertion. Um, for many of us yesterday, we started early and we finished at nine. Um, so for many of us, we had a 12 to 13, 14 hour day. Um, that doesn't happen every day, but that's not unusual. Can I get an amen? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so there is serious exertion, but again, why wouldn't there be? Our Lord gave up his very person, but then look at the, one of the key followers of our Lord, right? Paul is whipped five different times. Each time he's whipped, they use 39 lashes. Three times he's beaten. Okay, if he had just said I was beaten three times, I've never been beaten. He's beaten three times. He's stoned once. He's shipwrecked. One can only imagine the horrors of shipwreck three times. So it's like he gets on the boat and thinks, oh, I've been shipwrecked once. That'll never happen to me again. I kind of did my time with shipwreckedness, right? No, there's two more times coming for Paul being shipwrecked. Um, Lightning only strikes once. Well, in this case, shipwreck stroke three times in Paul's life. Um, he's in constant danger. We know he suffers insomnia. 
And he's often going hungry because when you're out on an adventure and in the ancient Middle Eastern world or in other parts of the world still, if you're out on an adventure, part of the adventure is how are you going to eat? I mean, where will you get food? So how do we take that, this Pauline life, and how do we square that and understand that with the reality of burnout? How do we become those who sacrifice our lives? How are we free to sacrifice our lives, the fourth S? How do we serve without burning out? So uh, what, what I want to talk about is the importance of establishing your Sabbath rhythm and going to Jesus and understanding Jesus. Um, he says to them in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Um, what we have to start with in understanding how we establish Sabbath rhythm from verse 15 is the establishment that the Lord wants to be with us. He wants to have the Passover feast with us. He wants to be very, very close to you. So he gives us the Holy Communion. On that same night, he washed their feet. And he invites us into a Sabbath bonding, which is the first point I want to make. He will invite you into a Sabbath bonding. Two, I want to talk about Sabbath bonding and finish lines. And I'm going to step out from the text a little bit at, on that point number two to get more pragmatic. Three, I want to talk about Jesus being slow to self-protect in verse 21 of, in the exegesis of this passage. And Jesus refuses to self-position verse 27. All four of these things coming to Sabbath bonding with Jesus, learning how to employ finish lines, being slow to self-protect, which is absolutely against what you often feel when you're doing ministry and refusing self-position. All four of those components will actually lead you to a life that I believe you can avoid burnout and actually thrive. Um, and I'm really thrilled to have the testimony. In 25 years of full-time ministry, I've not burned out. Um, I can't say I haven't been close. I, I can't say I haven't crawled into family vacation times, I have, and Madeline can give testimony, um, but I've never gotten to that point where I was cynical about my work. Wow. And I was a massive cynic, actually. I've never been cynical about my work. I've never been so exhausted, I couldn't do it. I've been almost so exhausted. Um, and I want to be very honest with you. I mean, I have had, particularly in the early years of my ministry, when Resurrection was in great conflict and great challenge, and I was leading, you know, with a team, but the only priest. I mean, I have mornings on Sunday morning where I would be in tears at 6 a.m. to Catherine saying, I can't do it this morning. I, I can't preach. I'm too exhausted. I'm too afraid. I can't do it. So I've been close. <laughs> I've been very, very close. Um, and she would say, yes, you can. <laughs> and you will. And she lay hands on me and prayed for me, and I did. Um, and it was really, really good, and I really, really needed it. And she was very loving about it. She was like, hey, you can do this. The Lord's called you to do this. Um, so I've been close, and that's important. I don't want to paint a, an unreal picture. But I, but I haven't crossed over that line, and I think it's because I've been able to learn Sabbath bonding, finish lines. Slowly I've learned how to be slow to self-protect and refuse to self-position. So the Sabbath bonding. Primarily, I want to say about this is this is about Sabbath. This is what Jesus is saying here is he's inviting them into a kind of Sabbath. I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. At the heart of Sabbath is not a break. And I need a break. You do need breaks. And I'll talk about that. It's a bond. And that's the gestalt you've got to get clear about. Is that the heart of Sabbath is not about getting a break. And a Sabbath practice is not, you know, like, like a Sunday afternoon you know, watching the Packers beat the Bears or Thursday night, Chad. Um, although Sunday football can be a fine part of your Sunday day. But that's not going to be the heart of Sabbath. The heart of Sabbath is a bond. The heart of Sabbath is the worship of the living God. 
right? Which isn't that true? I mean, haven't you known in your own lives already how you're like, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so freaked out, um, but you, you get up and you go to Lord's Day and you worship, and you're like, I feel better. <laughs> you know, like, I just feel better. I'm doing better. Well, that's because you had a bond with the people of God in Koinonia and with, and with your Father in Heaven. So often what we really need when we think we need a break is we need a bond. Um, you know, because, because what happens with ministry exhaustion, ministry fatigue, by the way, is you get to the point where like, a nap's not going to help. A whole week of sleep isn't going to help. A vacation isn't going to help, right? I mean, you, you need breaks, and I'll talk about that, but what you deeply need is you need a bond. You need the Lord. I have gone into prayer times utterly exhausted. How will I lead the church in this next week? And I've come out of that prayer time half an hour later, and I can do it. And I can do it. And it's not just like, I, I can do it. I'm like, huh, I can do this. I met the Lord. How often have I texted a prayer partner at Catherine and said, I'm better, I met the Lord. That's it. It's the Lord. He'll give it to you. See, he's with you. He's like, I, I just earnestly desire to have Passover with you. I want to share my presence with you. I want you to bond with me. That will get you through the exhaustion. That will get you through the pressure. That will get you through the heartbreak of ministry. There's so much heartbreak and disappointment. But he'll get you there. And it might literally be that half an hour prayer time or that conversation with a trusted gospel friend um, or family member who can just talk you off the ledge, remind you of the gospel, remind you of Jesus. That's a bonding. You've got to have that bonding. Um, so what's really, really key, and we'll talk about the finish lines here in the next point, is that's why you having patterns of bonding is so important. And that's what really shifts, right, when you come out of an immature Christian faith where you were taught to have your Bible study every day, which is right. But you shift out of immaturity to maturity and realize, oh, it's because I need to bond, right? It's like, that's why quiet time matters. That's why morning prayer, whatever you call it, devotions matter. It's not because I, I need to do this, do the right thing. I've got to bond with Jesus. And, and that's what your times of prayer in the evening, in the morning, need to be as a place of bonding. Um, so that was a, so a breakthrough realization for me that came two years ago um, was, you know what, on Saturday nights, not every Saturday night, but, but some of them, I need to actually bond with others in prayer. Um, so rather, because Saturday night for a preacher, you're just like, like I'm preaching tomorrow, you know, and like the energy is going to be required and the mental, you know, so, I, you know, usually I'd be like, you know, I'm done at, I'm done at eight, I'm going to bed at nine, um, I'm wrapping up, I mean, like at our house, six o'clock on a Saturday, when the kids were, it's kind of like, we're kind of done, like that was the weekend, we're done, I'm over, um, and that's what I had to do for years, but I started realizing, you know what, what if I did more bonding on a Saturday night? What if I, I prayed more on a Saturday night? What if I was with some of the people of God on a Saturday night and was praying into the next day? What if I got an hour less sleep, but two hours more of bonding? Um, wow, has that revolutionized how I think about my ministry. It's just changed it so much, and it's always a risk. I mean, so I'm, I'm going to pray with Steve and Eddie, our two ordinands, on Saturday night. Um, and there will be part of me, it's like I'm preaching two different sermons the next day, leading both services, laying hands on both these men. Um, and part of me would be like, shouldn't I be in bed by 8? But instead, I'm going to start praying at 8. Um, why? Because I think the bonding, which is Sabbath, is more important than a break. And so there are ways that we, we, we can practice it. And Jesus invites us into that. So let me encourage you to think this year um, about that Sabbath bonding principle. Uh, just, 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 just to take the principle first. And to begin to realize, because when you're really tired, you don't think straight. That's part of being tired. Um, is that what you need when you're really tired, even more than a break is a bond. Okay. Now, I do want to talk about finish lines and Sabbath finish lines. And I want to, I'll just read to you uh, from Genesis and from the, the wonderful creation account. 
You know the verse well, but let me read it to you. And on the seventh day, God finished all his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Wow. I mean, what is rest at that point, right? He's not sleeping. Our Lord doesn't sleep. The idols sleep. The false gods sleep. Um, he doesn't sleep. What's he doing? It's God with God's self. It's God in the bonding of the Trinity with himself. Using demarcations like time, which is our creaturely, you know, concern, God's outside of time, but using it to describe to us, I'm with myself. I'm in fellowship with myself. I'm in bonding with myself. And that in itself is a rest for God. What a powerful verse. Two is of chapter two. And he finished. What that exactly means theologically, I'm not sure. Because God is always actually in his very person creating. I mean, he sustains all creation. So what it exactly means that he finishes, I don't know. It's anthropomorphic in some capacity. It's, it's some kind of translation into human ways of thinking to help us. That God finished and he rested. But it's very important um, that likely Moses, I think Moses wrote this and taught us this, which is to say what? That when we Sabbath, we bond and we finish. You have got to have finish lines. You must have them. And this is the ancient and powerful Jewish practice that people like the Bohm still practice with their Shabbat um, practice as uh, Jewish believers in Yeshua, where they every week have the sense of finish. It's not woven into my life in the same way as a Gentile. I, I admire it. I, I love it. I don't know how I would do it. But I have found other ways to finish. And I want you to be very clear that it is, you are responsible to understand how you finish. So here are finish lines I want to describe to you. You need to have a daily finish line um, where you're, you're quote-unquote done. It has to look like something. Uh, for me, it looks like getting home and putting my phone in a certain place. Um, I keep it on because I need to be available for emergency contact, but I have my phone in a certain place, and, and, and it doesn't travel with me. Um, it's, it's in a certain place, and I can hear it if it rings. So that's really important. For me, um, a daily finish line is I read. That's just very important for me. So now I read about two pages before I fall asleep, but I read. Um, so that's daily for me. Um, for, uh, it's not every day anymore because I'm getting older, but um, some kind of recreation is very important for me. And I'm a highly active person. So, you know, I get out, I run, I get out, I go for a walk. But I have to have some sense of, so often, like, my days at res will finish, and, um, and then I will go down, and I'll change, and I'll go out for a run. And I'll get out in the marsh, and I'll run. And that says to me, I'm done with this type of service. I'm transitioning to go serve my family, and it helps me say that was a finish line. Um, so there's just diff there's different ways that you can incorporate that. And, and finish lines change, by the way. Like some days I've got a, you know, eight to five day, but a lot of days I don't. I mean, on the mission field, your days are so much flow. And you've got to have flow in your life of ministry. I'm not saying that you can have a rigid, this is always the way it is. I'm always done at five. You'll drive yourself crazy with that thinking, which is why you have to be clear about what your finish lines are. My finish lines on a Monday look different than my finish lines on a Wednesday, which look different than the finish line on a Thursday. All right? So that's also, when you think about ministry, you, you have to think um, in blocks more than in days because your days change, and, and, and they will also change. Okay, so let's talk about weekly, weekly finish lines. I want you to have weekly finish lines. Okay, it's my expectation, this is not a personnel moment as much as it is just in ministry. Generally what I have found, um, and, and this is 
somewhat different, but I have overall found that I'm able to commit about 50 hours a week to the work of the ministry um, on, a, on a regular basis. That's kind of what I have found works in my ministry in my life so that I'm highly productive for the kingdom, but I'm also resting. And um, my call was also to be a disciple of my children. And so I was really clear, I need to disciple my children, I need to serve Catherine. So 50 hours helped me, and I, th I think like that. Not everybody does. I, I think hourly. I just can't help it. I'm just detailed in that way. So, um, and I also made a commitment that I would overall serve those 50 hours in five days. Now, again, this is going to be very American, Rachel and Peter, so you know, this is going to work differently in another country, right? Um, but in the American culture where I work, where the workday is very much a prominent part of how you think, and the Monday through Friday thing is a thing. I mean, Friday is a deal for them. Friday is the day that people go to mosque, right? Um, so it's different. But I, I, so then I actually established with my vestry very early on, it's very important to establish with vestries very early on, and I can actually help our planters with this now. I said to them, you've got my heart, you've got my energy, and I will give you 50 hours a week on average every week, and I will give you five days, but I will not give you six days every single week. I can't do it. I can't do it because I read in the Bible that I'm supposed to be a manager of my household. And so there's no way that I can do six days a week and manage my household well. Maybe some pastors can. I don't know how to do that. I just can't do it. And they accepted that from the very beginning. So I was very, very clear and it created clear expectations. What that allowed me to do by working 50 hours in five days is I had one day, and I didn't have this, honestly, when my children were younger, but now I have a day of rest, um, which for me is basically my Friday morning. I rest on Friday morning. Um, I would get breakfast with Madeline. I go read the Wall Street Journal. I sit in Adams Park like this because I'm so tired. Um, you know, I go for a run, and I get time in the Bible. But I, I rest. And the thing for me in those four or five hours is I don't respond to anything because part of my job is to constantly be responding. That's how I serve. Is I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a first responder. Um, well, I don't do that for four or five hours. That's a, that, that's a way of actually having a finish line, having a break, and then being able to bond with the Lord. Um, is I just, I just, I just, that's how I do it. For me, that's Friday mornings. And then Catherine and I transition, and she takes Friday afternoon because she needs a finish line, right? And so I, so, and then it's fun to serve each other in that way in marriage, right? So, like, what's your finish line? What's my finish line? I'm really good at finish lines. Catherine's horrible at finish lines. Um, Brazilians don't understand finish lines. They just, they just, they, this is a whole different way of doing life. Um, but I've helped her have finish lines, and, and it's good. So that allowed me to have a day, a day of rest. Um, it also gave me another day for life work, right? Because you need a day where you're getting things organized in your financial life. That's a big part of doing ministry is you need to handle finances as well because there aren't usually a lot of them, which doesn't mean that you don't you need more time with them, not less, um, because you're very clear about where everything's going. I'm 52 years old. I still know where every dollar goes in our family budget at 52. I wish I didn't have to, but I do. Um, that takes time. Right, so I do home administration, and I sit there at the table, right, with the laptop. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. You're gonna get it totally real with, with Madeline here. Um, and then I pray with Catherine. God help. Um, I, you know, and someone's got to cut the grass if you own a house. Someone's got, you know, blah 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 blah. That's actually really important stuff. That stuff really matters. And I also got really clear. I don't want a life where I don't do that stuff. I, I just don't want the kind of life where I'm not doing some of that stuff. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't get help doing things in our house. We definitely need help, you know. I can't do it all in one day. But I do do stuff, and it's part of life, and it makes me feel connected. And by the way, most of your parishioners, if you're leading a local church in this area, that's what they do. Um, so actually, believe it or not, like, when you, when you give a sermon illustration, uh, Will did a great job with this. What do you do on Labor Day? He helped hang pictures. It was actually, it was guilt-inducing because Catherine wanted me to hang pictures on Labor Day, and it didn't happen. I was like, 
Will, man, like, you talked to the priesthood. That's my thing for Sunday. And you talked about hanging pictures. Both cases. Um, but yeah, that was great, right? Because a lot of folks did something like that over Labor Day weekend, right? And it's great when they hear their pastor did that. They actually really, really, really like that. Um, and so you need a day like that. And, um, and so you, this is really, really key. And so what happens in this time of, of finish line in your week, and particularly of getting that rest and that bonding with the Lord, is you realize, okay, I'm not my work. My actual life deal is to become like the Lord, not to become a better pastor, not to become a better evangelist, not to become a better missionary. My life works to become like the Lord. And when I take two days where I'm primarily not engaged in church ministry and work, I remember that weekly. I also remember I belong to others. I'm not just myself working this job, trying to create this ministry. I belong to others. Others have a stake in me. And again, in, in my vocation as a husband and a father, um, I was weakly reminded others have a stake in me. And that's really, really important. And that, that's also true in roommate relationship and close friendship, right? Your close friends have a stake in you. It isn't just your sheep that have a stake in you. Your, others do. And that's actually really, really important for your personhood and for you to remember who I was. And there was just a delight um, and still is in the days where Honestly, I spend a day with my children, and they don't think about me as a pastor. Now, they need a lot from me, but they don't need what my, my sheep need. They need something different from me. Well, that muscle better be developed to me. How do I develop that muscle? I give you my kids what they need from me. I have to do it at least weekly. I mean, you do it daily, but you put eight to ten hours in, and it's there, but it's not that much. But you have a whole day with your kids, right? I mean, then you're developing a house. Then you're developing that muscle, and you're realizing, I belong to others. I'm not just my own agent. Really important in Sabbath finish lines. Monthly. Uh, monthly, we just highly encourage a day of prayer, um, to get a day of prayer. And it doesn't happen every single month, but I would be thrilled if you made it a plan for every single month and it actually happened seven times. I'm happy with that. I'm a pragmatist in that way. Um, quarterly. Quarterly prayer retreat. So to try to get, to get get away, and again, I can do this better now than I could when I had a lot of young kids. When I had a lot of young, lot of young kids, I did a prayer retreat once a year. I went overnight once a year because the overnight was so costly to Catherine with five young children at home. It just, the cost was too high. Um, so I just couldn't do it. It just wasn't, it wasn't right. Um, but I did it once a year. And, um, but now I, now I do it quarterly. So quarterly, I do an overnight because I can right, bond with the Lord in a different way overnight than I can even for a several hour prayer day. Um, annually, prayer retreat. So annually, definitely a longer prayer retreat where you want to get in a situation where you've got two or three nights where you can get away. And again, that isn't always, you know, for moms with babies, not always possible for dads, young kids. But as you can build that into your life, is a very, very important thing to have an extended, more than an overnight prayer retreat away. And annually, you need to take vacation. Um, uh, and some people just don't take vacation. I, I'm always bemused by that and actually somewhat stunned. But there's many people who don't take vacation. That's never been an issue in my life. I love vacation. Um, I love it. And uh, maybe that's because I've just fostered. I have a lot of other interests. Um, I don't mind being away from church for three weeks. I mean, I miss res, but I don't mind not doing church for because I have other stuff I love to do. Um, and, uh, and I think it's actually really healthy, you know. Um, do I have full-blown hobbies? No, I don't have time for full-blown hobbies, but I got stuff I love to do. So other things that are part of the finish line that may be for you. For me, it's reading, it could be games, it's activity, it's getting outside. Um, diet is a part of finish line. So it's like, how, how am I going to eat in my life and ministry? 
That's actually a whole complete teaching that Catherine wants to write and give to Gregory House, and, and when she has a chance, she will, she will do it. But thinking carefully about how you eat and what you're putting in your body, because again, ministry has a lot to do with energy management. Right? You're always managing your energy. And especially as you get into more and more leadership roles, um, what you're doing in leadership roles is you're managing energy. You're, you're, you're getting clear on how much energy do I have, so you're doing everything you can to gain energy. What you eat, how you exercise, sleep, um, those are all extremely important to not burning out. Extremely important. Um, and then, how will I manage my energy so that I'm able to serve well on the Lord's Day, which is a particular level of energy. I can serve well Res Tuesdays and Major Staff Day. I used to lead those meetings. Now Amy leads them. But, um, you know, how can I lead that meeting? How can I come in ready for that? It's all part of, of having a, a proper finish line, you know, before. And again, your finish lines will get blown up sometimes. And, and kids throw up all night. And, you know, flu happens. And snow happens. Lots of things happen. But again, you're trying to establish a rhythm that when there is a need to flex, you're flexing. It's not how it is all the time. Right. Okay. Um, so I, I want to make sure we have time to, to do questions around that. So I'll, I'll leave some time at the end of this because um, I think that that's, that's a very, very, very pra practical thing to think about. So when I think about 50 hours, I think blocks. And I generally tend to do an 8-hour day, a 10-hour day, or a 12-hour day. That's how it works. Um, I used to do uh, regular 16-hour days. And honestly, after my illness and as I'm getting older, I just can't do that. And that's actually a mercy. Um, there is a certain kind of numbing fatigue after a 16-hour ministry day that's insane. Um, but I did them, and then I'd be very careful to moderate after that and say, okay, tomorrow's an eight-hour day. Tomorrow's a six-hour day. Um, but I don't recommend that. But I do recommend thinking 8, 10, 12. I find that that's really, really helpful. And that's doable, particularly if you're doing five, five days. Um, so it'd be a really fun conversation with the stakers how this works with the mission field. So different. What's that? It's so much flow, and it's all relationship, and it's also in a culture that's wired so different than a free market, capitalist, individual-based society. So <clears throat> it'd be fun to hear how you guys do, do Sabbath and how, how that works. Because obviously Sabbath, <laughs> Sabbath's got to happen. That's biblical. Um, the other stuff is, is applicable to this culture. Sabbath, that's universal. Um, all right, great. Let's look at, uh, at our Lord then and his slowness to self-protect. Verse 21. <coughs> but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Luke 22. I, I just can't get over this. Sewn into our Eucharistic liturgy is the betrayal of our Lord. Every time the Eucharist is celebrated in our Anglican tradition, we say on the night he was betrayed. Betrayal was, it, was, was one of the central experiences of our Lord. So much so that, again, it's central to our Eucharistic celebration. Which is to say this. This will be part of the Christian life. And by the way, our secular enemies, which I, they're out there, but are rather often faceless in our culture, um, they can't betray you because they're not for you to begin with. Betrayal is so poignant and so devastating because it always comes from inside. That's the very nature of betrayal. 
which is to say, your greatest wounds, unless perhaps you're working in a, a Middle Eastern country, but even there, one of your greatest challenges is your own team. Um, your greatest wounding, your greatest disappointment, your greatest heartbreak, it'll almost always come from inside. And sometimes it'll be from betrayal. And I've done this long enough that I've had betrayals in my ministry. Um, and how I take comfort in knowing that our Lord even allowed a betrayer in his you know, tight 12 group. They chose to love even his betrayer. So here when Holy Communion is instituted, when our way of being close to Jesus is being given, there's a betrayal of his closeness. So here is the feast of closeness, Holy Communion. Holy closeness, you could call the Eucharist. It's a holy closeness. And there in the feast of closeness is a betrayer. And our Lord refuses to self-protect. That's very powerful. Take that. You all, the temptation to self-protect is immense in ministry. It's just so huge. One of the great temptations in the Christian life and in the human life. But oh, is it even greater in ministry. Um, because it'll happen. And once it happens, that's often where a ministry reaches a turning point. And you decide after your first major betrayal, A, you decide, can I keep doing this? That's probably why a lot of the, 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 the pastors that started in their 20s didn't finish in their 60s, is they were betrayed. Um, so you'd say, can I keep doing this? And for those that decide I'll keep doing this, then comes the really important question, how will I keep doing this? I mean, if you've met pastors on automatic pilot, come on, you know you have. You know why? Probably because they got betrayed. Why are they one step removed rather than one step engaged? Why do they seem aloof? Why do they have that kind of pastoritis where you're talking and they're going, yeah, 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 but you actually know that they're really not taking in what you're saying? Not because they're not good people, not because they don't love the Lord, they probably got betrayed. And they decided, I'll stay in this, which was heroic. I mean, in some ways, love them for it. Um, but I, 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 I can't be that vulnerable again. It's too insane. It's too brutal, too treacherous. And so pastors get a step removed, which is the opposite of pastoring, of course, and which is why we have so many pastors who are ineffective. But, oh, we can't blame them. We have to love them and care for them because it's so hard. Um, so what I want to teach you all is that actually what our Lord did not do was self-protect, or he was at least slow to self-protect. And that's an important um, uh, adverb in this. You need to be slow to self-protect. Jesus loves us so much, of course, he gives himself, even it greatly costs him. Judas is a betrayer, but you all know your Bibles, as are we. As are we his betrayers. How I've betrayed the Lord in my life, in my rebellion, in my refusal to submit to him in my isolating practices. Hmm. One of the core ways Jesus serves us he, is he gives himself to us. And as the Bible says, he loves us to the end. So with our Lord, so with us. How we love to the end. How will we be slow to self-protect? Now, let me give a caveat and a clarity as I teach you about being slow to self-protect out of our Lord's life. A caveat. There are times when our Lord would have us be protective. So there's an important caveat. There are certain people that you may be in relationship with in ministry from whom you should self-protect. 
Now it is rare, and I think there could be an inclination to almost do it too quickly and too often. That said, there are people, some of them are sociopathic that you will be in ministry with. Some of them have true personality disorders. Um, they are unstable people. And, and in, in that case, you're loving them by creating a proper protection. I had to teach that, although I'm a little loath to, because I actually think that our inclination culturally is toward boundaries and walls and all of that. So, um, I, but at the same time, I don't want you to hear me say there aren't times for boundaries. There are some who have been violated in ministry, and that violation cannot continue. There are some who have to understand how they can slowly begin to have freedom to, from self-protection because of the way that they were abused or violated. I want to ignore that in any way whatsoever. Um, I just am trying to push against uh, kind of an evangelical subculture thing, which is an obsession with boundaries, which strikes me as an obsession with self when taken too far, right? And a very, very American way of thinking about your life. Um, and, uh, and a large part of the world would just have no idea what we mean by boundaries, and they'd be properly and rightly offended by it, as they should be, um, you know? Uh, so so it's, it's, it's a tricky thing for me to teach. But there are times where we do, so we have to be slow to self-protect. When we do need to self-protect, we need to make that decision intentionally. My concern is that self-protection happens subliminally. It happens subconsciously. It happens because you got hurt and you didn't say, no, I'm become a self-protector. You're more just like, I gotta stay in this, I gotta do this, so now I gotta protect to be able to do this. And you wanna be very intentional. You wanna have those prayer partners and trusted friends and spiritual moms and dads to whom you can say, I feel like I need to protect myself here. Am I right? And they can say yes or no. That's really, really important. So one thing I've been with my prayer partner 25 years, Jeremy Longhurst, many of you know Jeremy, um, is I'll say to him, man, I got really hurt here. I got really hurt by this person. And I need your help knowing when it's okay for me to say, no, I'm not gonna get together. Or when I should say, of course I'll get together. You know, it might hurt me <laughs> to get together. Um, where, and, this, and by the way, once you start leading publicly, do you know how often it's tempting as a pastor to take where you got hurt privately? And if you're clever, find ways to transfer that into a public realm so that you marginalize people or you create. I mean, one reason why folks love growing churches is because they can get more and more protected. That's part of the megachurch um, uh, sort of uh, energy is for a pastor, particularly if you have a particular preaching gift and you can grow a church large by your preaching, you get more and more isolated and protected, which in some ways is a very safe place for some pastors. I don't think it's a gospel place or an incarnational place, but I think it's a, a very safe place. Um, and so, so th there's a way in which we have to be clear, when should I self-protect and when should I not? And I want you to be intentional about asking that question in your ministries, all right? I'm also asking that you won't need seasons, by the way, too, where you just have to heal. And I got so hurt by some people, it's like, you know what? I do need to get together with them, but I need three months. And so they'll reach out and say, hey, can we get together? And I'm emailing back, absolutely. Um, either I'll say blatantly, I need a few months, or if it's too complicated, I'll say, you know, I, I won't be able to do so until now. Um, so I'll agree to do it. I won't ultimately self-protect, but I might need a season of protection to heal. You know, the scab can't be pulled off too soon. All right. Um, just jump in, Peter. Absolutely. So again, I, I think first we go back to our bonding with the Lord, and we need to have, A, just an intellectual insight that core to his ministry was a betrayer, and core to holy closeness was allowing betrayal to happen. 
yes, of Judas, and of course, then of all of us in our sin nature. So we have to start there, honestly, just as an intellectual apprehension. This is true about our Lord. I understand this biblically about our Lord. So we have to start there foundationally and then work from there. Okay, so if this is true about our Lord, um, then I think it's helping people become conversant in their inclination to self-protect. Some have had that personality inclination or that kind of healing need inclination. So it's becoming conversant in that. It's understanding that as a thing. Um, and it's then, particularly if a person has a real inclination toward that and you're pastoring them, it's helping them understand where they can be safe. Because for them, it's all about safety, of course. So what can safety look like? And making sure that they're developing places of safety in their lives before they might meet with it. Say there's a person that is particularly a nemesis for them, where they feel unsafe. Well, they have to have other places where they do feel safe to build a sense of safety, to build a sense of trust, to be able to take that risk eventually. Also, that, that risk should often just be very pragmatic, should not be taken in an isolated way. So um, even for me as a pastor, when I feel like I'm in a bit of an unsafe situation, um, maybe somebody's trying to set me up, which is happening more and more, where it's, it's kind of like, can you catch me in a gotcha? Can you get me to say something that's controversial or whatever? Or I, I will never meet one-on-one. -on -one. So I'm also very careful. I, I, there I'm not being self-protective, I'm being strategic. Well, I will, I will be present to that person who's upset with me or who has a misunderstanding of me, um, thinks a certain thing about me. I will still meet with them, but I will not meet one-on-one. -on -one. And that's also helpful for me and for them. Um, so helping a person you're pastoring to know, hey, you also have to do this by yourself. Um, we, will, we will find a way to help do this as a community. And for your own self to also realize that is important. By getting to the point where you can actually be very conversant about that inclination and know when you're moving into that mode is really important. And having people that even you don't know, they can tell you. Um, and this is the great thing about a prayer partner and, and, um, and Catherine in my life. I mean, it's just knowing actually, like, I was really sharp with somebody um, who I was self-protecting from because they had hurt me. And it was really helpful to have Catherine confront me on that and just say, you know, that was way too sharp. I mean, you know, I'm usually so nice. So actually when I'm sharp, it's even worse. Um, and she said, that was, that, that was too much. And I said, yeah, I'm struggling with that person. So just last week, I, I had a conversation with Catherine where I said, I am struggling with this situation. Um, I need to name it to you. And you've got to remind me to be a Christian about this, <laughs> you know, and not a, a you know, sinful human being about this. It's a big part of ministry. Um, I do think that one thing happens. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so here's the clarity around this: is if we have imbalanced self-protection, if we've gone too far toward the self-protection, I actually think it exhausts us more than restores us, um, because we're so often removing ourselves from Jesus and even those who can minister Jesus to us. So when self-protection goes too far, I think it's actually one of the great sources of burnout. And people think they're actually protecting themselves from burnout by self-protecting. Actually, what they're doing is they're removing themselves from the very place which your burnout can be healed, which is the Lord and others. So this is a bit of a paradox, but a really important one to realize that. We're often called to love so closely and to love so fully that we will get hurt even often. Even often. Okay. Uh, final piece in this protection is Jesus refuses to self-position. Um, and this is actually one of the great, great protections from burnout. Uh, self-positioning, it actually takes great energy, it takes uh, monumental effort, and it leads to a lot of burnout. He refuses self-position. Uh, this actually, we get down right after the Lord's Supper, and you guys know the verse well. A dispute then arose among them. So here we have the Feast of Holy Closeness, 
and we have the betrayer who's introduced, but then we also have the fight for greatness introduced in the Feast of Holy Closeness. A dispute rises among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So we learn here, um, excuse me, and he said to them, this is how he responds, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Um, so, first of all, as we look at refusing self-position, I want to just say that it's important, and this is just an act of the will, uh, more than even a healing, <coughs> is to refuse positional greatness. It's just an act of the will. To refuse the craving for a position that in some way communicates, even within a little world, a kind of greatness. There's a craving, a desperation for job position, title, employment status, degree, or fame. I don't think I've known a Christian who doesn't have that. Some have a lot more than others. This happens all the time in our imaginative lives. So do you imagine yourself in a particular job and going, if I had that job, I'd feel great. Do you imagine your email signature with certain degree letters after it or a title in front of it? And think, oh, if I had that title, if I had that degree, I'd feel great. Do you even imagine yourself, if you've gone farther down the road, maybe some of you aren't developed as I was, and in imagining positional greatness, oh, I would imagine how difficult it would be to deal with the pressures of fame in a kind of fantasy-like way. That's how I would know I'm moving into a place of positional greatness and my own, uh, my own will. I'm losing the battle. Maybe imagine being interviewed, right, by a famous blogger after you've achieved this place of positional greatness. And it's not just, as we see in verse 24, about seeking our own position, but then we're also obsessed with who else is getting position. So when you're caught up in positional greatness, you're thinking about your own place in the positional greatness, and you're also thinking about who else is getting position, who else is getting that ask, who else is getting that opportunity. You're obsessed both ways. Mark, I love what you said. Um, and not that, not that we don't have these battles within a family. We do, of course, have them within a battle in the family. But I love how you said about finding your place in a family. How different that is than trying to achieve a place of positional greatness. Um, I, I want our churches to be cultures where it is family, where you find your place, you know. Some kids are born first. Some kids are born last, you know. Mom does this. Dad does this. We all kind of have our, you know, auntie does this. Uh, grandma does this. You have these places within the family life, and you find your place. That's just a beautiful testimony, by the way. You find your place in there. You find out who my brothers and sisters are and who my younger siblings are. You, you have a place. Isn't that beautiful? Like, that's church, right? But how many churches are actually places of positional greatness, right, where there's a sense of, you know, and, and, it, and there's a lot of subtle ways. I mean, I wrestle with having one of our coronal officers. I really do. Because in some ways, like, that's kind of the typical thing that a bishop would have. But I do love those windows, and I am there a lot, um, but I wrestle with it. Part of me goes, hmm, should I have that? Should Williamson have the other one? I mean, is that what I want to communicate? I, I think about it. Um, there's a lot of subtle ways in any church culture, any ministry culture, where there can be, you know, those little pegs and those little ways of thinking about it. Um, and so I've had to kind of think that through. What, it, what is feeding that, and, and where can that be a part of it? Um, so Jesus gives a simple remedy, and it's actually powerful. Um, he says in verse 26, yeah, not so with you. Again, it's just a refusal. It's not even like he says, okay, you know, let me lay hands on you and pray for you. It's more just like, not so with you. Just no. And so in some ways, let it be as simple as that. Refuse it. Just refuse it. Name it when it comes up in your soul. 
and say, no. No, i just not going to have this. Um, now, to be clear, positions, titles, degrees, those aren't a problem in themselves. Of course they're not. They're not intrinsically a problem, but the craving and the great need for them is. Um, some of you know the story of Ambrose, the fourth century bishop. I mean, he was never made a deacon. He was never made a priest. He was a leader in the community who was, who was immediately made the Bishop of Milan. So he didn't build his way up there by titles and kind of achieve into a position of greatness. God chose Ambrose as his man for that time and said, you're my man for this ministry. This is what I want you to do. So go do it. So it is with any ministry we're called into, with a ministry residency, with a planting residency, right, with a missionary calling. Those are called the diaconate or the priesthood or the episcopacy. It's God saying, I want you to do this. And if you're in a healthy church culture, all the leaders are trying to do in that church culture is figure out what God is saying to different individuals about what he wants them to do. That's all you're trying to do. You don't have some status thing that you're growing up toward. Ambrose is a beautiful picture of that. God said, you should be the bishop. And there's actually the legend is a little child said, let Ambrose be the bishop is what the legend is. But it's a beautiful legend. If it's true, it's great. I mean, if it's not, what a great thing. A child called out Ambrose for the work of the bishop. The Lord will get you in the position you need to be in. That's what I really want you to hear. He will get you there. He'll get you in the work he wants you to do. He'll get you there. He's more concerned and, and earnestly desires to have that bonding with you and to get you in the right place than you do. Not only do we ref refuse positional greatness, we also refuse, and I think this is in the text, a kind of interpersonal greatness. So it could be that you've actually fought down and kind of battled the demon of positional greatness. You don't have a craving for that. But for many of us, particularly for a very relationally inclined generation, which is your wonderful generation, and you're so relationally inclined, it still stuns me. And I'm highly relational, but I'm an absolute robot compared to, to you guys. Um, it's, like, it's just like never enough relationship. It's amazing. Um, and so what happens then is, I, would, I, don't, I don't need positional greatness. I don't really care about that. I want interpersonal greatness. I want to be the greatest friend ever the most you know, faithful friend ever. Um, and I want people to view me as that. So my payout is not getting the title. My payout, my payday is people saying things about me that make me feel really good about myself. It's so interesting that those in authority have themselves called benefactors. Um, we see this in verse 25. The actual Greek is um, those in authority over them are called benefactors. Actually, what, what you have is, a, is, an, is an emphatic there, have themselves called benefactors. What, what was going on there is that there was rich people who would give to cities, and the payment was they would give honor. So the city would say, you give us this money to run our city, we'll give you honor, we'll give you affirmation. And how often do we actually give ourselves in relationships that we may, we may be called a benefactor? It's a far more subtle vice than personal greatness. It's a way of saying, I will serve as long as I'm called an amazing servant. As long as I'm known as an amazing servant, I will serve. I don't know any Christian has struggled mightily with this. I still find this very hard. The positional greatness, even before I was made a bishop, it was not a thing for me. And some of it was, I was finally a rector, and it was so brutal. I was like, oh, this is what I wanted all the time? This is, this is so hard, you know? <laughs> no, by the time I got to the bishop thing, I actually knew that's not what that is. Um, but interpersonal greatness, oh, my word, is it a battle I still have to fight. How I want to be spoken about, how I want to be thought of, how I want people to talk about me, how I want people talking about me. Oh, man. Woof. 
It's bad. It's selfish. And it's in my soul still. So we could even learn to be slow to self-protect, and we might even be able to refuse positions of influence. But often both decisions leave us in the hope that there'll still be a payment. You know, okay, I won't self-protect, and I, I refuse position of greatness, but there's still going to be a payment, and the payment is going to be interpersonal status, the payment of appreciation, affirmation, and honor. Now, it is extremely important that you receive affirmation. That's part of how you bond with people, right? Affirmation is so important because it's a bonding agent. That's why affirmation matters, by the way. Um, that's why you need to affirm those that you lead alongside and those that you're leading. You must regularly affirm because you'll bond together. Um, flattery doesn't help you, but, but, but true affirmation bonds. When you see something in somebody with, of, of who they really are and what they've done and you affirm it, that's bonding. You need that. But at the same time, you can't be dependent upon it. And you really have to learn this move. You do something, you do it well, and you know you did it well, and nobody says anything to you. Your supervisor doesn't mention it. Your friend doesn't mention it. Your spouse doesn't mention it, right? You've got to learn the move of glory to the Lord. And you have to learn it over and over again. Lord, how did I do? I actually need affirmation right now. Nobody has said anything. Um, how did I do? And hear it from him. And take it. It's a thing to learn, but you've got to learn it. When you make that little move, by the way, and you do it over and over and over again, it's so funny. I, I, we would get out of church. And again, we had lots of young kids, and Catherine would just be so overwhelmed by getting to church, managing the children during church, and then talking to people after church and managing the children. And we would get in the car, and I'd be like, you know, like waiting for the sermon affirmation, right? <laughs> you know, surely she'll mention it. No, well, yeah, in 10 minutes she'll mention it. You know, 10 minutes go by, and I'm watching my watch, you know, like, isn't it going to come? You know, it's like, well, no, of course it doesn't. I mean, she probably didn't hear the sermon. I mean, she was, you know, chasing children and talking to people and praying for people. You know, like, she had other things actually more important than affirming about my sermon, right? So on one level, in a marital bishop, you say to her, hey, I need this after a sermon. She's like, great, got it. Um, but another level, you go, what am I going to do? Right? No emails came in the next day. You know, preacher narcissistic supply. You go in your email. Anything in there? Uh, nothing today. All right, you know, what are you going to do? Oh, you got a father in heaven. He'd love to talk to you about it. He heard every word. He's super engaged. He's right there. And he'll talk to you about it. That's really an important move. When you can make that move over and over and over again, you end up doing it for the Lord and not for others. And that will keep you from burning out. Doing it for the Lord and not for others will keep you from burning out. All right, you guys, so, so, so we've got about 10 minutes. Um, love to hear just thoughts on this, what's helpful, uh, a new concept for you, or um, a question that comes up as we think about our Lord and, and, and establishing Sabbath, Sabbath rhythms in our own ministry, in our own life. Totally. It's a great question, Emily. I think it has to do with what's happening in the heart when it's given. If I'm flattering, I'm hoping to get something from you. Perhaps affirmation back. Um, if I'm affirming, or using a biblical word, if I'm encouraging and using the spiritual gift of encouragement, I actually want to give you something and I don't need anything back. Yep. 
Yeah, I have a, I have a real aversion to flattery. Um, because I feel like somebody's trying to get something from me and they're using a soft spot, which is my need for affirmation, my human need for affirmation. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> I, there isn't a lot of things on at resurrection. I'm really grateful for that. I, I don't feel like we're a flattery culture. Um, I hope we're an affirming culture. Isn't it true when, when, when you're affirmed by somebody, don't, don't you, and it's true affirmation, don't you feel closer to them? Sometimes they, they actually know you. Like they just, like, they affirm something in you that, that actually happened. You go, I just, that just makes me feel closer. When there's a dearth of affirmation, I find it feels, you know, more fragmented, more, not as close. I just, it's just a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. 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 More achievement oriented as opposed to, I saw this in you. That's an affirmation. Thoughts, ponderings, questions or points, even just interactions, great, whatever on your mind. Yeah. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. That's really powerful. Mm. Mm. 
Wow. Kristen, what, what, what did you do on those half prayer days? What, what was the general shape of those those hours that you had with the Lord? Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Any final thoughts or questions? Yeah, right, right. So I think solitude is, is absolutely critical for my own Sabbath time, and I think for all of us as Christians, yes, an absolute yes. And I think being able to have some kind of, uh, of weekly, I mean, if you can have daily solitude as such a gift, isn't it? Um, that's not always possible in my life, but it often is now. And so I think it's extremely important for that, Lydia. Um, and definitely on a weekly basis, I think that's part of the Sabbath 
that was a rhythm that I know I needed early on. And that's why I would say, you know, I would go and be by myself. Um, you know, literally wearing sunglasses and a hat sometimes and Wheaton just because my, my folks are down here and, you know, they, I love them, but I was kind of like, I'm really not ready to engage right now. Um, and so I, because I wanted solitude. Um, and, uh, and then Catherine getting that. So it's just an, a yes to that place. But say a little bit more about how that interacts for you around self-protection. Um, That's, oh, that's a great question. Who, who wins? That's really, really good. I need to actually write some more about that in this. Um, so quick answer um, would be obviously it depends on what's interrupting, right? And so uh, I, I am in that a lot. And so I think it really, it really depends on the extremity of the situation, honestly. If there's a life and death situation as a pastor, the life and death situation wins. And that may sound ridiculous, now, but, but it's true, and, it, and it's been really clear. Um, but if it's not life and death, like say it's an illness situation or even a health situation for somebody in a church or on a team or whatever, and I'm with my family, um, nearly every time my family would win. And those were some hard moments. Um, and I think I probably hurt some feelings, and I, I didn't like that. But where I would say, you know what, this is not life or death. I could be there tomorrow and serve as well, maybe not as well, but serve. And so I'm going to make a decision. So it really was what's, what's breaking in um, and then how important is this in terms of somebody's actual life and, and that's who wins. So just a quick example, so many times I wouldn't go until a day later when there was an illness or a need or an immediate thing. But I remember it was somebody's birthday and uh, one of our parishioners was in a full-blown uh, hemorrhaging situation after a childbirth. And it was a birthday, was it your birthday party? And, um, and I got the call, and I went to them, and I said, I have to go. I'm really sorry. I have to go. But I had never done that before. And so it wasn't like we broke trust. I mean, she wasn't thrilled, um, disappointed, but trust wasn't broken because so often, actually, who had won was my family. So, um, but there's, there's some other components that I, I want to think about later because it, it can also happen in a lesser and extreme way, you know, where that stuff just, like you guys, I mean, it just comes up all the time. Um, and, uh, and so again, in America, it's a little bit easier to, to compartmentalize it. That's a great question. I'll think about it some more. Who wins? <laughs> Who wins? Andy Stanley had a, Andy Stanley had a great teaching back in the day. Um, he talked about choosing to cheat, and his whole thing was, he said, you ultimately end up cheating somebody in your life, you know, it's either your work or your family. And he said, I realized, um, do I want to drive away from my house saying, God, please take care of my family? Or should I be driving away from the church saying, God, please take care of the church? So I'd rather cheat the church than cheat my family. It was an interesting way of putting it. I thought that's another way of thinking about who wins. He's like, I'd rather be saying, Lord, you got to help the church because you're the, I'm, I'm the only dad that my family's got. <laughs> that was clever. You know, classic Andy Stanley way. All right, you guys. All right, well, next week, um, Ken and Stephen uh, will be back with, you know, all, all revol revolvers firing. Is, he's the uh, you know, swashbuckling theological pirate that he is. Um, so uh, he'll be here, and I'll do our second session as well. Um, Peter, thank you for interrupting me. I should have said that, by the way. Um, when I'm teaching, please stop me. It's great. I love it. Um, I'll be here with Ken and Stephen to help encourage him to stop. 
um, which is great because he's so glad to engage. But when he when that train starts going down the tracks, you know, yeah, yeah, only a few dare step in front of it. But I don't mind, and because uh, sometimes I'm like, whoa, 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 that was really important, and there's they're they're back ten minutes ago. But please stop me, like that's nobody for us to interact on this stuff. All right. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together in the word, time together. Talk about ministry. Talk about the gospel and preparing these men and women uh, for, for ministry in the gospel. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you did earnestly desire to share the Passover peace with us. You earnestly desire to share closeness with us. And you earnestly desire for us to have time together where we remember that who we are is in you. And we belong to you and we belong to others, not just to ministry. And we thank you for that. Lord, help to establish Sabbath rhythm. And help to establish holy finish lines. Help to establish the holy flexibility alongside those. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.